Last week, something dramatic changed at the U.S.-Mexico border. Title 42 ended. Title 42 was a pandemic-era policy that restricted immigration, making it much more difficult to enter the United States. In the days prior, thousands of migrants had amassed at border entry points along the border wall here in El Paso Juarez, but also all the way down to the west in Tijuana, San Diego, and to the east in Brownsville, Matamoros. And while those numbers included record numbers of people surrendering themselves to Border Patrol, those days after May 11th were quiet and uneventful, and you could even say anticlimactic. This calm was not what Washington Post reporter Arelise Hernandez had expected. She's been at the border all week in Ciudad Juarez in Mexico, just across the border from El Paso, Texas. But what is unfolding is that in these border cities in Mexico, there are still thousands of migrants who are ambling around this city looking for work. In the meantime, others are even camped out in the streets. Okay. Hola, ¿qué tal? Arely Hernández del Washington Post. I met a group of five men who were among a group of folks who were released right after Title 42 was lifted. They had turned themselves in at the border wall and thought they were successful, only to learn that they were going back to Juarez. Y no le dieron pues una razón por haberlos regresado. What I'm asking them is whether law enforcement, CBP, or some other official had given them an explanation as to why they were being returned to Ciudad Juarez. And what they were saying was, no, they didn't tell us anything. They didn't give us any paperwork. They just put the plastic handcuffs on us de plástico. and sent us on our way. So the men are describing what is, for them, a painful experience. Most of them are fathers. Back in Venezuela, the economic situation has become so untenable and the poverty so crushing. They're describing how difficult it was for them to have their children ask for certain things that they need and them not being able to provide it. There was one moment I can't get out of my head, and that was a conversation that I had with Angel Andrade, who broke down in tears, talking about, you know, the state that he currently finds himself in. You know, he's wearing the same clothes he's been wearing for several days. Um, he's living in a government-run shelter. And so he went to the centro of Ciudad Juarez, to the cathedral, to pray and to ask God, you know, why was this happening to him? You know, I think it's the first time where I've heard them feel like they've been deceived, not just by their understanding of U.S. immigration law, but also by the smugglers and the people who told them that this was going to be easy. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Anahar O'Connor. I'm your guest host. It's Thursday, May 18th. Today, 
a big moment of transition in U.S. immigration policy. We're turning to Aralisa's colleague, Nick Miroff. He covers immigration policy at The Post. We talked to Nick to make sense of this confusion that we're seeing at the border, to understand the bigger picture and why it just got a whole lot harder to legally enter the United States. The most important development here is that the Biden administration has put in place a new um, a, a new policy restricting asylum that says that if you enter the United States illegally or you don't apply for protection in one of the countries you travel through en route to the U.S. border, then you will be presumed ineligible for asylum in the United States. And that's a major change from decades of U.S. immigration law that have essentially said it doesn't matter how uh, you arrive on U.S. soil, you do have uh, uh, the chance to make a fear claim and seek protection in the United States. So, Nick, listening to the stories of these Venezuelan men at the border, it really shows how confusing this moment is. Before we dig into what's happening, can you first explain what asylum actually means in the United States and how the process works for most people? So under U.S. immigration law, if somebody arrives on U.S. soil and expresses a fear of persecution in their home country, then they have the right to seek asylum in the United States. And the way that process starts is they have to express a fear of, of basically being deported to their home country. And asylum protects people uh, who are facing persecution on the basis of their religion, their political beliefs, their membership in a particular social group. It doesn't protect people who are coming to the United States to seek better economic opportunities or even people who feel unsafe in their, in their neighborhoods. But that too, along with so much in our immigration system, is, is something that is contested right now. And I would just note that asylum is different from the refugee system that many of our listeners will be familiar with, in which people who are facing persecution abroad have the opportunity to try to uh, apply to enter the United States as a legal permanent resident, but as a refugee. Again, asylum is for people who have arrived on U.S. soil and are facing deportation. You touched on this a bit, but can you talk about some of the factors that are driving people to seek asylum here? This has been a, you know, a, a time of a lot of, of turmoil uh, in, in the hemisphere around the world with the pandemic, with economic instability. But really, we've seen this increase in asylum claims coming for about a decade now. And, you know, I would say it's a mix of people who are, are coming because they are, they are fleeing some sort of persecution or insecurity in their home countries, whether that's as a result of government actions or, or crime. But there's also an important part of, of this population that are coming for primarily economic opportunities and jobs. Now, a lot of people are hearing this term, Title 42. What exactly is it? So Title 42 is a longstanding U.S. public health law that goes back to the 1940s and was was essentially deployed in March 2020 when, when the Trump administration first started responding to the pandemic. And it, it's basically a public health emergency declaration for the purposes of border control. The idea being that if there is a dangerous communicable disease out there, 
then the U.S. government can suspend normal border proceedings and restrict the ability of people to come into the country. In this case, it meant that U.S. border authorities could rapidly expel border crossers back to Mexico or their home countries um, without, for instance, giving them a chance to follow the asylum procedures. And so the Trump administration put this in place in March 2020, and it applied it fairly aggressively um, for the for the months, the last few months that that Trump was in power. And then when the Biden administration got in and was really trying to emphasize its its uh, compliance, its belief in all of these public health policies, Title 42 remained remained in effect for for a time. But the Biden administration was under a lot of pressure to bring it to an end, particularly from immigration advocacy groups who who saw it as a, a violation of these U.S. immigration laws that, that protect the right to, to seek asylum in the United States. And so there were several attempts by the administration to end it that were wrapped up in, in legal uh, wranglings of some sort. And it wasn't until this spring that the, that the White House, you know, basically declared that it was going to, it was going to end the pandemic public health emergency that was the underlying legal basis for Title 42. Tonight at 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time, the pandemic-era Title 42 public health order will end. And so with that public health emergency ending, the Title 42 policy at the border was was set to expire, and it, it did on May 11th. And what were the expectations leading up to the ending of this policy? Well, there was a, a great deal of apprehension within the Department of Homeland Security and the White House about what was going to happen when Title 42 lifted. Um, because the Biden administration has faced record numbers of people crossing the border and Title 42 was viewed as this sort of last, you know, remaining enforcement tool for the government that allowed it allowed the government to to deal with at least some some portion of this extraordinary volume of people coming by you know by quickly expelling them there was a this view that once that tool was gone then even more people would be would be coming across and so the department of homeland security you know estimated that that illegal crossings could could go you know as high as 18,000 a day from from the 6 or 7,000 that they were seeing at at pretty peak times. And so you saw even even President Biden last week saying, you know, that it was going to be chaotic after Title 42 lifted. And you said yesterday that the border could be chaotic for a while. Does that mean you feel your administration was not prepared for the end of Title 42 this no, week? No, no, no. Uh, what I was saying is it takes time to put some of what we want to do in place. But really what we saw, curiously, was kind of the opposite in that um, for many migrants who were already in Mexico, the expiration of Title 42 was more like a deadline to get into the United States. And so there was this record-breaking surge of people, uh, primarily from Venezuela and Colombia, who crossed in the days leading up to May 11th and put an incredible strain on the, on, you know, on, on the system along, along the border. And then, um, as Aurelis described so well, uh, you know, that, um, you know, that the, the, the May 11th date came and, and went and, and actually the opposite uh, to what everyone had predicted occurred. 
And what we saw was a kind of a pause and things settled down and have been remained, you know, relatively quiet in the days since since Title 42 lifted. But everyone, you know, who has who has spent time watching the border and following this issue knows that these things can change really quickly and that this this kind of calm that we're seeing now is uh, quite fragile. Nick, how does the ending of Title 42 affect people seeking asylum specifically? Yeah, so Title 42 allowed border officials to quickly expel or turn back some border crossers, but it wasn't applied to everyone. And what we saw from Trump to Biden is that the percentage of people who were sent either back to their home countries or back to Mexico under Title 42 significantly went down as the Biden administration created more exceptions for people with certain vulnerabilities, but also faced this growing array of, of, of people coming from countries around the world um, who Mexico, for example, would not take back. And so even by the time Title 42 was getting ready to lift, it was only being applied to fewer than half of the number of people who are coming over the border. And now what the Biden administration has replaced it with is this much more restrictive asylum policy that basically says, if you come across the border illegally or you don't seek protection while you're on your way to the United States border, then you're gonna be presumed ineligible for asylum. And so the Biden administration is trying to channel, trying to route people back to the official border crossings, the ports of entry, with a designated number of slots per day for people who will be eligible for asylum. But generally, you cannot cross the border illegally and seek protection in the way that people have been able to do for decades under this new policy. So as part of its effort to expand legal opportunities for migrants to cross the border and come to the United States, the administration has directed them to use the the CBP-1 mobile app, which is going to create an appointment at the border to come to the border and to start the asylum process. And so about a thousand people per day now are going to be allowed to, are going to be given one of these slots and they can, they can come to a U.S. port of entry and they can start that process. And in most cases, they will be released into the United States with a, with a court appointment where they will be able to fully plead their, their claims for protection in the United States. But that, that court appointment may be months or even years into the future. And in that time, they will be able to live and work in the United States legally. After the break, we talk about what President Biden promised on immigration on the campaign trail and how that's different from what's happening now. We'll be right back. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. 
See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it. And why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Now, taking a step back, can you talk about some of the criticisms of Title 42's immigration component and you know how does that compare to what's happening now? What do immigration advocates say about this current system since uh, Title 42 expired? So one of the criticisms of Title 42 was that it was cutting off access to the asylum system, but that wasn't that wasn't really true because what we saw under the Biden administration was that the percentage of people who were subject who were subjected to Title 42 expulsions steadily decreased under Biden. So it went from, say, 80 to 90 percent of, of border crossers were being expelled under Trump. And then and then under Biden, it's gotten down to about 40 percent. And so the Biden administration was already pre-screening lots of people for exceptions to Title 42 based on their their vulnerabilities, whether, you know, they had some sort of medical reason or they had a, a strong persecution claim. Um, it it exempted uh, unaccompanied minors really from the from the beginning, and we've seen um, unprecedented numbers of unaccompanied minors crossing um, since then. Uh, and most families um, were not subjected to the expulsion. So, a lot of people have had access to the asylum system. This, at the same time that lifting Title Forty Two opens it up in a way, and that and that it, it, it takes away this enforcement tool for an automatic expulsion, the, the new policy that is restricting asylum, depending on how people arrive, is in some ways going to make it even harder, um, you know, and, and, and potentially reduce the volume of people who could try to cross the border and make a fear claim to start the asylum process. How are countries like Mexico reacting to having migrants sent back to those areas? Yeah, that's well. That's that's a complicated one. Mexico, um, you know, has really become an, an enforcement partner of the United States. What we've seen over the past decade is that migration and cooperation on immigration enforcement has become almost the most important bilateral issue between the United States overtaking trade or or security themes. And and with the current government in Mexico, the president uh, Andres Manuel López Obrador. He has um, has been willing to cooperate first with the Trump administration and now with the Biden administration on many of these enforcement measures. And so what we see the Mexican government do is is dial up its checkpoints and patrols and, and its deployment of, of security forces to stop migrants at particular inflection points when the United States is really is really asking for for that kind of help. So right now, with Title 42 ending, the Biden administration is talking about Mexico's deployments um, to try to stop more migrants from from entering southern Mexico. Uh, I would say we don't we haven't seen anything as intense as what the Mexican government was doing when Trump was threatening to destroy the Mexican economy with crippling uh, trade tariffs. But clearly, there there are there's a, you know a, a deployment of Mexican security forces now trying to stop more migrants from reaching the U.S. border. What we've seen in the past is that you know the Mexican government will do this for a few weeks, 
And then, um, you know, once attention turns elsewhere, that that kind of deployment uh, tends to fade. Mm. So, Nick, I was really surprised to learn that there's such a diverse international mix of people at the border coming from countries like Haiti, Nicaragua, obviously Venezuela, and even from countries as far away as Afghanistan. Does the country that you're coming from influence how you're treated at the border or whether you're given preference? So migrants are are coming to the border from more countries than ever before in numbers that we've never seen before. And that includes migrants from Africa, India, China. One of the reasons that people from from those non-traditional sources of uh, border crossers, um, you know, one of the things that leads to them more likely being released into the United States is that it's so difficult for the U.S. to to deport people um, when they don't have regularly scheduled deportation flights. So if it's someone, say, from Guatemala or 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 Ecuador, uh, you know, a country that where the, you know the U.S. has regularly scheduled flights, then it's it's you know there's a, a, a far higher chance that 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 person will you know, will face deportation. But if it's from a country that the U.S. you know doesn't tend to send people to, or a country with whom the U.S.'s relationship is is quite strained, and that would include say Russia, China, Venezuela, Cuba, then the the chances that the person will be deported. Um, are much, much lower. And in fact, one of the reasons why we've seen record numbers of Venezuelans, for instance, is that is that the the US really has no ability to to send people back to Venezuela as deportees. And so the United States has made this deal with Mexico again, uh, with you know cooperation of the Mexican government to be able to deport people from Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua, and Haiti back to Mexico. Uh, for the first time. So again, this first time that the Mexican government has agreed to take back non-Mexicans as deportees. And and so in the past few days, you know, we've seen, uh, you know, according to U.S. officials, more than a, a thousand people um, from those countries going back to Mexico under this new arrangement. Mm. Now, we know that President Biden is running for a re-election. Uh, when he ran for president, did he make any promises uh, on Title 42? And what might the ending of Title 42 foreshadow for his second term run uh, for president? Well, Biden really campaigned on a broader promise to be more um, humane and welcoming toward migrants towards than Trump had been. Within 100 days, I'm going to send to the United States Congress a pathway to citizenship for over 11 million undocumented people. Obviously, the Trump administration's posture toward migrants was was much harsher, uh, most famously with the zero-tolerance family separations. Um, And so when Biden was running, he was really promising to do a 180 on immigration and the border without making commitments on Title 42. Again, because Title 42 was like a public health authority, it wasn't discussed as an immigration enforcement tool, even though that's how it was being used. So he was less committal on on Title 42 itself. And until Congress passes the funds, a comprehensive immigration plan to fix the system completely. My administration is going to work to make things better at the border using the tools that we have available to us now. 
But what we saw when Biden got into office was right away, you know, he had more executive orders on things related to immigration and the border than any other subject. And he rolled back uh, a number of Trump's most important, um, you, know, you know, border restrictive measures while leaving Title 42 in place. So uh, it's taken two and a half years for him to, to end Title 42, but this was the last major policy holdover from Trump, so to speak. And now the policies that we see at the border are, are much closer to what Biden, um, you know, has said he wanted to do, even if they're not, you know, even if to, to many advocates, they still seem restrictive or um, uh, are, are not as welcoming as, as maybe people, you know, expected given what he said on the campaign trail. Yeah. I mean, this is a pretty big policy change and certainly, a, as you said, a shift away from what the Trump administration was doing. Uh, looking forward, what does this signal, if anything, about where immigration policy is heading in the U.S.? You know, I think it's too early to tell. This is this is almost like a an experiment and 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 a test for the Biden administration, and it's at a, coming at a crucial time. You know, this is um, a, a major issue for the president's critics heading into next year. The Republicans are, you know, talking about the border and border chaos and are are eager to capitalize on this as a major wedge issue. Um, and the Biden administration is now, you know, putting into place um, its own its own policies, really trying to 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 contrast what it's doing um, in terms of providing, in, you know, expanded legal pathways, more more legal opportunities for for migrants to come, letting really you know hundreds of thousands more people into the country um, lawfully than 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 you know than Trump was doing. But at the same time, trying to um, trying to get those border numbers down, trying to get the situation more manageable, trying to to have uh, the system be a little less dysfunctional, while calling on Congress incessantly to come together and and pass you know some kind of lasting immigration reform. Um, but you know, as we've seen. Uh, successive administrations have been doing that for a long time with no results. So um, what we're going to see is this continued kind of patchwork enforcement mix at the border that is vulnerable to court challenges that um, tends to anger people on, on every side and can change in a flash based on, you know, some policy ruling or, or, or the perception that, that suddenly there's a new opportunity to come to the United States. What about globally? Are there any global ramifications of this shift in policy? Um, could U.S. policy on immigration influence what the rest of the world does? Yeah, well, I mean, the U.S.-Mexico is one of the is one of the flashpoints, obviously, because probably more people are cr- crossing that border than any other in the world. But but yes, these are these are patterns, trends that we're seeing all over the world. There are millions of people who have been displaced from their home countries in the Western Hemisphere. There's obviously still, you know, large numbers of people trying to reach Europe. And I think, you know, many countries are are struggling with this. It's there are competing factors here um, as wealthier countries um, age and, and experience demographic changes that reduce the size of their workforce. There's a major economic incentive to allow more um, immigrants to come into their to their countries and contribute to their economies and prop up their economies. At the same time, there's a lot of opposition 
to immigration on a large scale and it, and the you know disruptive or or you know or, or cultural impacts that that it may have, particularly on you know in more homogenous societies. And so, but yeah, I think you know these are these are things that countries all over the world are are wrestling with. Nick, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Good to be with you. Nick Miroff is an immigration reporter for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Alana Gordon and Jordan Marie Smith, with help from Eliza Dennis. It was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Monica Campbell. If you love our show, please subscribe to The Washington Post. It's a great way to support the work that we do. You get access to the section that I usually write for, called Wellbeing. There's tons of coverage and tips about nutrition, exercise, and all sorts of ways to live a healthy life. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. I'm Anahat O'Connor, and we'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.